We live in a litigious society. I like that word, litigious. It sounds really impressive, doesn't it? What does it mean? Litigate. We live in a society that is not always legal, and because of that, we go to court. We have a lot of lawyers in this nation, and more every year. Latest count, about one and a third million lawyers in this country, and last year, over 40 million lawsuits were filed in the courts, most of them in the states, and about half of them have to do with money, and about a third of them with collection of debt. Why so many lawsuits? Why so many lawyers? You know, lawyers get a bad rap. They, most of them do a very good job, and most of the lawsuits are probably legitimate, but some of them are frivolous. For greed, for example, the New York lawyer who had just earned a judgeship, I don't know if he earned it or not, but he got it, and he sued the cleaners that lost his trousers for $64 million because of the emotional distress it put him through. Frivolous. Some for notoriety, the uh, prisoner in jail who was, had been tried and convicted of uh, kidnapping sued his captives because they had escaped. Notoriety. Sometimes it's insanity, like the bipolar guy who went to court, and you know what he did. He sued himself. You know, it's crazy. Some of them, though, uh, actually are kind of weird cases that the court decided in the favor of the plaintiff, like John Fang, handsome young Chinese man who married a pretty young Chinese lady, and a couple or three years later they had a baby, and he went to the nursery and saw the baby, and he said, that's the ugliest baby I've ever seen. That cannot be our baby. Look how handsome I am, and look how pretty you are. Are you sure you haven't been cheating on me? Well, she said, no. But she did confess to him that before they had married, that she had had several cosmetic surgeries that had changed her appearance. And so what John Fang do? He divorced her and he sued her for misrepresenting false pretenses. And guess what? The Chinese court awarded him $120,000. Wow, weird cases. Sort of like the elderly woman in 2005, Irene Finley. She was rushed to the hospital with an infected knee and the doctor immediately performed surgery. But two years later, because her memory was failing, could not remember that she had given permission to the doctor to do the surgery, sued him, and believe it or not, the court then awarded her $7 million. Dr. Roy then declared bankruptcy and she didn't get a penny and she probably deserved that. Probably the weirdest one though was a legislator in Nebraska, Ernie Chambers from the 11th district in Omaha, a state senator. He decided to sue none other than God himself. He sued God and took him to court and tried to place an injunction on God to stop the floods, the earthquakes, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, and the plagues and pestilence. Now, what was his point? He did not intend it to be a frivolous law court, he, a law case. He was making a point. In the local uh, government, they had been passing laws to prevent frivolous law cases. And he said, you know, anybody in this country ought to be able to sue anybody else, including God. Well, he had to be a resident of the state in order to be sued. So he said, well, God resides here because he's what? He's omnipresent. He's in the court with us today. 
The judge threw the court out, threw the case out of court because he said, well, he may be omnipresently present, but he doesn't have a post office box and he doesn't have an address here. Frivolous lawsuits, litigious society. You know, nothing has really changed in many centuries. The Old Testament in the 8th century, Isaiah prophesied and spoke against and condemned the corrupt practices of the lawyers and the rulers and the priests in Judah. You rulers are rebels, he said, and companions of thieves. This is at the very beginning of, of Isaiah's prophecy. Everyone loves a bribe, and they chase after rewards, the greed. They do not defend the orphan. They, they don't listen to the widow's plea. They don't allow them to come before them in court. And the same thing was happening in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Amos prophesied against the same kind of corruption. And this continued then to the end of the Old Testament. You see these kinds of prophecies and proclamations against corruption in Micah, later in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah, all the way up to the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi. For Malachi says that the people cry out, see about four and a half centuries before Christ, the people cry out, where is the God of justice? So we come to a passage of scripture this morning that deals with that. From a New Testament perspective, we need to remember that Jesus indeed was concerned about justice. And as maligned as the term is today by some, social justice, he was concerned about that as well. He was concerned about justice and mercy. After all, as he proclaimed in Nazareth and when he quoted from Isaiah, he came to do what? To free the oppressed and to share the gospel with the poor. He, he complained about the scribes and the Pharisees. They had devoured widows' houses. And where did they do that? They did that in the court. He said, yes, indeed, when he talked about the importunate widow that, that pleaded with the unjust judge. He said, you know, one of the points of this story is God will bring justice for his elect. And it will be soon. So he was concerned about justice, and he was also concerned about mercy. At the same time, folks... It wasn't just about social justice. His focus was on the kingdom of God, bringing salvation. So when he proclaims this in Nazareth in Luke, the fourth chapter, when he's talking about freeing the oppressed, of course, we know that he's also talking about eternal life and freedom from spiritual oppression and sin and death. He was concerned about the kingdom. He was concerned about relieving the oppression through kingdom ministry. And that is serving the least of these of my brethren as you would serve me. He was concerned about transforming society, but not so much legally. He was concerned that his disciples would listen to the words that he is speaking today from the Sermon on the Mount. Not only listen, but they would live those words out and they would teach others the kingdom ethic. His immediate goal was not to reform the legal system. His immediate goal was not to reform the justice system of his day. Eventually, his example, the way he lived and what he taught, certainly did that through the centuries, and we have seen it bring reform after reform after reform. And that's good. But his focus was on the kingdom of God. He was born under the law, Galatians tells us. He was born of a woman at just the right time under the law, and he lived within its boundaries. And we need to remember that 
even as corrupt as Ahab may have been. He did not come to destroy the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. And of course, that has to do with the religious law. He paid the temple tax. That was Jewish law. He followed the Roman law. Render unto whom? Caesar, the things that are Caesar, and unto God, the things that are God's. And he even submitted to the authorities, the legal authorities of his day, to the point of an unjust trial and an excruciating execution, crucifixion. So he lived within the legal boundaries of his day. At the same time, he was a radical. He was a bit of a rebel. He gave sound advice, and he kind of pushed the edges of those legal boundaries all the time. For example, when his disciples were accused of violating the Sabbath because they scooped up grain in the fields and ate it, he said, you know what, that's okay. That's all right, because the full law says that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, push the boundaries. He said, when you look out on a crop field and you see weeds out there, don't go out and pull them up right away. Wait until the harvest time so that you can tell the difference between the weeds and the grain. You see, he was very practical in his advice. Don't be judgmental. If you're judgmental, you will be judged and you may get worse. If you think you're without sin, cast the first stone, but don't be hasty in your judgment. When you go into a banquet, look in the places of honor. Don't go up front and sit down there first. Wait for the host then to seat you because you might be embarrassed if you take a place. But you see, his advice was very practical. How do you live within the boundaries of the rules? And one of the most difficult passages, I think, in the New Testament comes from Luke, the 16th chapter. He gives a parable about a shrewd businessman, a steward that was in trouble, and he went out and he sold, he, he called in all the debts for his master, and he kept his job, the unrighteous steward. What can you learn from that? Well, Jesus said this, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light, like you. And here's what he said. I say to you, make friends. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of mammon so that when it fails, when that mammon fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus was very practical about the way he approached the law and how you live within those boundaries, even though he pushed the edges. So today, he gives similar advice to us regarding the law. And the point is, as he said in Luke, the 16th chapter, make friends. From the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 25 and 26. Make friends quickly. Make friends quickly with your opponent at the law while you are still with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge then to the officer, and then you will be thrown into the prison, because truly, amen, he said, I say to you, you will not come out of there. You will not come out of the prison until you have paid the very last cent. You know, this is a continuation of the message from last week. In the Sermon on the Mount, the fifth chapter, Jesus is talking about how one fulfills righteousness. How does one live righteously according to God's intent of the law? And he gives six examples then. And the first of those examples, as we said last week, he dealt with the most grievous of the offenses in the second table of the law. That is murder. And the principle behind this, I think, is this. Don't let anger rule your life. 
Emotion can lead to something as extreme, that angry emotion can lead to something as extreme as physical murder. But it, it can also take other forms. It can, you can have a murderous heart and hate people. Or you can murder with a tongue. And last week we saw another example that he gave of applying that, that, that rule from, from the Ten Commandments. He said, be reconciled with one another. And this had to do with the brothers, with the Adelphoi. That is, within the body of Christ, be reconciled inside the church, what comes to be the church later. And it deals with informal relationships. Those relationships that have been broken and they impede worship. Now, the objective about which Jesus spoke last week was this. You see, you reconcile for this reason. If you don't, when you come to worship, you displease God. So you reconcile in order to avoid displeasing God. Today, he talks about, in verses 25 and 26, a second phase of that. And that is to make friends. These are not the, br the brothers within the body. These are the opponents. Now, you can have opponents within the body, but this is talking about out there, outside in the broader community, outside the church. And it deals not with for informal relationships, but formal disputes, legal cases going to court. The motive here is different. Make friends for what reason? Not to avoid displeasing God, but to avoid punishment. And he's very practical about this. So the first point here, I think, is that Jesus commands us in that setting to make friends with our earthly opponents. You see, here we have a legal situation with consequences. The subject apparently is a case is being taken to court. There are two people going to court apparently to settle a debt. The setting is not in the Jewish court. Because Jewish law had no provision for debtor's prison. Jewish law would not throw a person into debtor's prison for not paying a debt. They had other ways of taking care of it. This was according to Greco-Roman law. Greco-Roman law that says that every person will receive justice that is his due. So going to a Roman court with a Roman magistrate in the judicial process was a zero-sum game. There was a winner and there was a loser. There was a plaintiff, and there was the defense. And one would lose, and one would win. And if you lost, the winner then had this power. The winner could then direct the judge to take you into his custody, to turn you over then to the jailer until you paid your debt. And the punishment was that you had to stay there until the very last quadrant was paid. That's the very smallest of all Roman coins. It was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was about a day's pay. So it was a very, very small amount, but that very smallest of amounts had to be paid. It's sort of like the widow's mite. When she threw the two copper coins into the temple treasury, even though those were not quadrants, it was equal to that amount. It was a very, very small amount. So the point here is you stay in jail until the very last bit is squeezed out of you. Now the problem was this. If you're in that situation, you probably never would get out of jail. You would probably die in prison because you did not have the means to pay the debt, first of all, or you wouldn't be there. But secondly, you had to pay your own keep while you were in prison, or your family did. And then there were the lawyer's fees. And then there were the fines. And then there was the bribe that you had to pay the officials to get out eventually. And it was almost impossible to get out of prison. Many people died there. You see, Jesus says there is a better solution. 
And he urges his hearers very practically then to settle out of court. Don't go to court and run the risk of losing. Don't go to court and run the risk of being punished. That's the immediate objective. But then there was a more ideal objective that went beyond this. He says, you know, there's an even better objective. You can make peace and you can make friends with your opponent. This word make friends is, really means to, to, to be well disposed. That my mind is well disposed to your mind is well disposed to my mind. In other words, we have a meeting of the minds and a peaceable spirit. You see, what Jesus is saying, I think, here is really the basic problem behind this was not necessarily, probably, the financial debt. There was something else at stake. Because probably two people could work out the financial debt over a period of time. There probably was an emotional aspect to this. That one side or the other side was what? What's he dealing with? Anger. They're angry with each other. And this has led to the legal dispute. You see, the main problem for Jesus as he sees it isn't so much the money, it is a deteriorating relationship between the two people. And what he aims at is bringing them together in peace. And the solution is this. We can solve this out of court in an amicable way. You see, this is the ultimate application of do not murder. Do not murder, well, we don't murder, that's good. But even better than that, we can be reconciled to one another. We can be friends in church, believe it or not. <laughs> and we can make peace with our opponents out there. The opposite of murder is making friends, Jesus is saying. And there are four practical insights, I think, that we see from this very quickly. First of all, Jesus is being very prudent. This is the practical dimension. Settle out of court so that you don't suffer disaster. There's a second aspect. Be fair-minded. This is the ethical dimension. You know, in Jewish ethics and religion, they said that once you concede to your opponent that you're willing to negotiate, you give up all rights. You're saying, I'm willing to come to the table and I give up my rights. And in so doing, we yield to the other side. This is part of Jewish ethics and religion. You gave up your claim to your rights to come to the table. And in, in Greek culture, it was the concept of fairness. Be fair-minded. You know, you may have certain rights that you're going to defend, but if you're willing to come to the negotiating table and even sacrifice some of your rights, society sees you as a fair man. A fair man. And the principle behind this, being fair-minded, is sometimes it's better to be good than it is to be right. And that's a good principle. There's a third principle here, and that is to be self-controlled. This is the psychological and the spiritual aspect of it. Don't let anger guide your actions. Don't let your emotional anger then drive you to the law court and your irrational emotions lead to destruction. And I think there's a final application, and that is be peaceably minded. This is the social political dimension. Socially, we need to be friends out in society. Emperor Sigismund put it this way, at least we think it was he in the 15th century. You know, how do you defeat an enemy? How do you destroy an enemy? The best way that I destroy an enemy is by making that enemy my what? My friend. You see, angry words can be replaced by words of reconciliation and friendship and love and hope. And folks, it is possible it is just possible for people to disagree with each other, but still be what? Still be friends. There are a couple of applications of this. It can be the individual people, individual litigants going to court, but it also can be corporate. It can apply to groups, 
involved in class action suits or politics. Hmm. It's amazing to me that for over a century, there was not an impeachment in this nation after Andrew Johnson was impeached until we got near to the end of the 20th century. And it seems like part of the electoral process is once we put a president in, then we start trying to do what? Impeach him. Clinton and then Trump, two different parties, one on either side of the aisle against each other, folks. Litigation ensuing. What Jesus is saying, it's time for our parties then to cross the aisle, and even though they disagree profoundly about some things, it is time for us to try to do what? To be friends. To be civil with one another. You know, we can disagree, but we can still be friends and cross the aisle. There are three attitudes that make this work. One is concerned. We need to be concerned about the punishment that is coming. It is better to experience mercy beforehand and compromise beforehand than justice afterward. Because you see, justice is a merciless master. It is exacting and it is thorough. And Jesus makes this point very clearly by talking about when will you get out of prison? He uses a double negative. He says there ain't no way to put it in common parlance. You're not going to get out. Justice is very severe. So we should be concerned about that. A second is urgency. He says, do it what? Quickly. Do it while you're on the way. Because once you walk into that courtroom, it's over. You are throwing yourself on the mercy of the what? The court. And there's a third dimension, not just concern and urgency, but humility. Be willing to give up some of your rights, some of your personal rights to the other person so that you can become friends. You see what Jesus is saying here. Friendship is more valuable than pride. Friendship is more valuable than self-righteousness and being right. Well, you might think that's the end of the sermon, and it should be. No, not really. (laughs) There's another part to it. You know, some people spiritualize when they look at the Matthew text, and they try to take it into kingdom of God kind of arena and make it about the final judgment. And I think that there is an element of truth to that because he uses the word amen verily in that second verse and introduces it that way. But we don't need to use the Matthean text to see that. There's a parallel text. The parallel text is found in Luke the 12th chapter. And this very same passage is found in Luke the 12th chapter. And there it is very clear that Jesus is talking not just about earthly litigation. He is talking about coming to the throne of God. For in that, before that passage, there are five instances where Jesus then makes it very clear. You must be ready. You must be ready because the Lord is coming back. I'm coming back. He talks about the parable of the rich fool who stores up and then wants to tear down his barns. And Jesus says, you're not ready. You're not ready for the judgment. (laughs) You fool. Remember what he said? You fool, do you not know that this very night your soul is going to be required of you? And then he tells a parable about a couple of servants then that are waiting for the master to return. And he exhorts his disciples and then he says, You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So there are a series of these passages that lead up to the parallel text in Luke the 12th chapter. And they all had to do with the return of Christ and being ready for it. And he introduces the two verses that we read earlier with this warning. And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? What he's saying is, 
You're going to court and you don't even know what's going to happen. You don't know what your future is. So now we take a look at the other scene. Now we take a look at the other courtroom. Now we take a look at what he's saying in the Gospel of Luke. You see, the setting is different. These two that are walking along the road, they're headed to the judgment seat of God himself. Hebrews says that God is judge of all. And there's a judicial process that will occur. There's going to be accountability. The scripture tells us very clearly, and we must remember this. And when we preach about, when we talk about praying for the people with the gift of prophecy, we need people, not just in our church, but we need people in our workplaces. We need people in our schools. We need people out in the sports fields. We need people out there in everyday life that when they have a friend that they're talking to individually that they know does not know the Lord, they need to be very clear. They need to be very prophetic. And they need to say there are consequences. There are consequences to our sins, and we are going to come before God someday and have to account for them. The Scripture tells us in 1 Peter, every person will give an account to God. In Matthew, it says that not only are we going to give an account, but we're going to give an account of every word that we have spoken. And God is going to render to every person according to his or her works. We are going to be judged according to our works. We are going to be judged according to what we have done and not done. We are going to be judged according to what we have said or what we have not said. And we need to know this. Each one of us is a sinner. As we're walking toward that courtroom, as we are walking along the way, we are sinners walking along the path of this earth facing the judgment of God. And the punishment we know very clearly when we come to that courtroom and we stand before the Bema, when we stand before the judgment seat, we know the judgment is very clear. For the payment for the debt of sin is death. Imprisoned separation from God forever. Eternal death where we would never be released from that hellish prison because we have a debt that we can never repay. We cannot pay to the last quadrants. You see, because nothing that we do can pay for our sin. And we're judged by our works. The good news, though, is this. The good news that at court, Jesus is going to be the judge. The Father has put him in the place of judge, and he is going to look at us, and he's going to hold us accountable for what we have done and for what we have said. But the good news is we're walking along the road. We're on the way. And there's somebody walking alongside us. His name is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, His Spirit is speaking to our conscience and our hearts and our souls. And as we're walking along the way, we come under conviction of sin. And we know we're headed toward that divine tribunal. We know that we're going to face someday God and be accountable. And the good news is this. While we're on the way, while we're on the road, we can settle out of court. We can settle before we get to the tribunal. For you see, Jesus Christ on the cross paid the debt for my sin. Jesus Christ on the cross shed his blood so that the blood of Jesus Christ can wash me and cleanse me white as snow. He came to free the captive. He came to bring salvation. And Acts 10 defines his role not only as judge, but also as savior. This is the one we're told in Acts. This is the one who is appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. He is the judge. 
Of him all the prophets bear witness, and through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Here's God's judicial standard. We will be judged by our works. And I know that that rankles. I know when I said that at first, you probably sat back and you recoiled. You said, no, 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 we're not judged by our works. But we are, folks. We are judged by our works. And if we rely on our human works, we will perish. Because our human works are not even worth the widow's might. They are inadequate. We, rec- we, we rely on different works. We rely on the work that Jesus spoke about in John the 6th chapter. You remember when he talked about working for bread that endures and not that fast junk food? Remember that? And then he says, you know, they ask him, then what is it that saves? And he said, the work of God. The work of God. That is what saves. And then he defines the work then by which we, when we believe in Jesus Christ, by which we are saved. He says, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom God has sent. You see, we will be judged by our works. But those who believe in Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior, their works then are covered by the work of God. The grace of God that eradicates us from sin, and we don't earn our salvation by our works, but by the work of Christ on the cross. Those are the works by which we are judged. Let me close with this. Today, if you know that you're headed toward the tribunal, those same three considerations that we spoke about earlier apply. Concern, urgency, and humility. We should be concerned as we head to the judgment seat of God because death is real and hell is real. And there is an eternal destiny in hell that awaits anybody that is not under the grace of God. It is spiritual death. It is irreversible. It is eternal. And there's no second chance. We should be concerned about that. And when we speak to our lost friends, we should make that very clear in charity and love. Secondly, there's an urgency. We are called to make friends with God on the way, to settle out of court with Jesus Christ. And it must be done what? He uses the word tachy there, the word from which we get tachometer, tachycardia. It must be done speedily. It must be done now. It must be done today because today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. We have no assurance that tomorrow will come. It must be done now. There must be a sense of urgency. And when we go forward, when we leave here and we share with others, when we share with our friends the good news of Jesus Christ, we must emphasize the urgency of God's plea. And then there's the humility. We must admit that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves and beg God's forgiveness. We must yield ourselves, as as we saw in the earlier situation, where we give up our personal rights. We give up our self-sufficiency. We give up our pride as we come to God's table of judgment. And we ask Christ then to intercede for us and restore us to the Father's favor and welcome us into his family. Folks, in this second situation, I would put it this way. Friendship with God is worth it all. Friendship with God is more valuable than our pride. It's more valuable than being right or righteous. It's more valuable than all the riches of this world. And if you know of someone that is headed toward that tribunal that does not know Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to share that word with them.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, by his shed blood on the cross, that we have the offer of redemption, we have the offer of restoration, we have the offer of reconciliation, we have the offer of being restored to you and being made friends with you. Those of us who have been at enmity and at strife and enemies of God, who have accepted Jesus Christ, have been drawn into his family and been made friends of God. Our prayer this morning is that someone who is listening who has come under the power of conviction of your Holy Spirit as they walk along life's way, the the life's way that is a dark path that leads to death, that you might rescue them, open up their heart and their mind, that they might see the marvelous light of the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. We're pilgrims on a journey. We're on life's road. We're brothers on the road.